Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Sam Henderson. Um, I'm a member over at Redeemer Baptist in Olive Branch. Um, right now, we are meeting at uh, Longview Heights Chapel. Since COVID kicked us out of the middle school over a year ago, um, we are uh, hoping to return to the middle school auditorium um, as our normal place of worship here soon. I'm in our pastoral residency program there, um, and uh, Jason, Brother Jason has connected with uh, the pastors over there at Redeemer. I, I believe uh, one of our pastors, Josh Kubler, has come and preached for you multiple times. And um, they gave me the opportunity about a month and a half ago. So I was actually here around Memorial Day. And um, the opportunity came back very soon. And I'm so excited and glad to be here. Um, I know Brother Jason has uh, put a lot of faith in me. So I hope that I uh, fulfill that faith and, and hope that he uh, comes back with, with good news. So uh, I'm an Olive Branch and Memphis native, okay? I've, I love Olive Branch. It is my hometown. I'm so grateful to be here with you this morning. Um, so we're actually going to continue in uh, the series of 2 Corinthians this morning. So if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 today. 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 11. If you're taking notes this morning, uh, the uh, sermon title is The Confidence of Paul. The Confidence of Paul. All right, so let's begin in our text, 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 11. Paul writes, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory." If you will pray for me as we continue in God's Word this morning, studying um, to see about the confidence Paul has. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the rain as it's already been thanked for. God, we thank you for um, just being able to meet together in this place, that we don't have to worry about someone running in here and telling us to stop, that this is illegal, but we can freely and openly worship Jesus. 
that we can dive into your word and, and hear from you that you will reveal yourself to us more today. And I pray through the preaching of the word that you would conform us into the image of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. The first point, if you're taking notes, is Paul's confidence in the living letters. Paul's confidence in the living letters. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3. Uh, the essence of these verses could be summed up in a sentence. The transformed lives of the Corinthian believers were the proof or living letters to God's work through the previous ministry of the gospel by Paul. Let's look again at our verses. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you should know that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So here we have Paul with a rhetorical question. He has two of them, actually. The first is about self-commendation, and it's like a reintroduction. He's asking, do I need to reintroduce myself? Do I need to recommend myself to you? We might think of self-condemnation, or uh, excuse me, com com mm, commendation, as boasting in oneself or boasting about who you are, which it can mean. But in this text this morning, the meaning is more in an ancient term of friendship and trust. When Paul asks this question, it's more likely that he's referring um, to those anti-Paul members of the church, these traveling teachers who would have put forth doubts about Paul's actual love and care for the church at Corinth. We see in chapter 1, verses 12 through 23, Paul explaining why he didn't come to them. And when he said he would at first and then he wasn't able to, it wasn't a fleshly matter, but he was being led by the Spirit. Also, as we will see later in the sermon, there, there are others in the church teaching that the laws and practices of Judaism are still in place. And this could be the same anti-Paul contingent who's attacking his character to the people of Corinth. This is the reason why he's asking, do I, do I have to recommend myself? Because there are people among the church at Corinth saying, that Paul guy doesn't actually care about you. He doesn't love you. And this only Jesus ministry that he's presented, this gospel it's not enough. You need more. This group is much like the Judaizers in Galatia, not preaching and teaching the same gospel as Paul, but teaching a Jesus and, Jesus plus type gospel, where a Christian would need to follow the Jewish religious system and Christ. This commendation that Paul's referring to was, was one as one scholar puts it, it's, it's a common form of recommendation in which a person commits himself to another with or without the aid of mutual connections with the intention of forming a reciprocal relationship based on trust. In self-commendation, the person does more than simply introduce himself. He entrusts himself to the other. The practice of commendation, therefore, is not a moral issue but a social one. So think about it like this. By Paul asking this question about recommending, reintroducing, reentrusting himself to the Corinthians, what kind of memories would be conjured up for the church at Corinth? He was with them for 18 months. We know this from Acts. And he was then there another time, which he refers to as the painful visit. 
So he's been with them twice. He's lived with these people. He's worked beside them. He's preached the gospel, taught the scriptures in their homes, shared meals, prayed, cried, shared in the joys and sorrows of life. He saw and was a part of the Spirit's work amongst them there. All of these things, you would imagine, would have bonded them for life. On top of his time there, he's written to them, harshly in some cases, but because of the sinfulness in the church and chaos in the worship, but not as a judge, but as a pastor and a shepherd who desires to see the flock follow the Lord Jesus and be conformed into his image and be called to repentance. The answer to this first rhetorical question is a resounding no. No, he should not have to commend himself again to the church at Corinth. The second half of the verse um, is the second question. Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? This is a callback to chapter 2, verse 17. For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. The words, as some do, this some are the peddlers of chapter, uh, peddlers of the word in chapter 2, verse 17. It refers to these traveling teachers that would use letters written by other authorities and churches to give them legitimacy when they showed up at these other churches. They would carry these letters around with them and say, hey, look, you know, so-and-so from so-and-so said I can preach or I love Jesus or something. And they would just show up and Sometimes they take their word for it and, or the word of someone else, and sometimes they wouldn't. It was a common practice in those days. Letters like this are even referred to all over the book of Acts. Paul himself gives reference and commendation to others in his letters. Paul isn't attacking this practice. But as we see in verse 2, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. Paul did not need a letter of recommendation to prove his apostleship and ministry. The work previously done at Corinth was his proof. Paul's contrasting his legitimacy against the illegitimacy of the other fake apostles and most likely the Judaizers who've been teaching that they need the law of Moses as well as Jesus for true salvation. All the while defaming Paul's character and his former ministry to the church at Corinth. So Paul's legitimacy is based on the evidence of the transformed lives the living letters, the believers at the church of Corinth. Let's read chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 again. You, are, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul's care is evident by his love for the church and his writings. But that statement, written on our hearts, seems to set the church at Corinth apart to some special place in Paul's mind and his heart. His feelings and his emotions towards this flock are especially strong. Paul makes a similar statement about the church at Philippi. Listen as I read this, Philippians 1, uh, verses 3 uh, through uh, 7. I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first days until now. And am I sure of this, that he who began of good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. 
For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. What a sweet pastoral term. Do you realize the pain and the agony that this church at Corinth had caused him? And yet here he is saying that they are written on his heart. What love, what grace and forgiveness this shows on Paul's part. I know this might seem like a trivial turn of phrase, but let's pause for a moment and think about this. If you were Paul, how would you be reacting to those folks? I mean, come on. Paul has been put through the ringer. I know if it was me, I wouldn't, I'm not sure I could be so forgiving and as gracious. Uh, These people have walked around and, and defamed his name, have said, you know, he's not a real apostle. These guys are the real apostles. But yet he spent time with them. He cried with them. He ministered to them. He saw the first work and the first fruits of the Spirit in these people's lives. But they've turned their backs on him. Listen, when we are hurt by others, is it not our fleshly response to, re- to respond in kind? To be equally as hurtful, if not more? This happens in the workplace. It happens in homes between husbands, wives, parents, and children, siblings, between members of your church, and, and between leaders and members. However, the power of grace and mercy that Paul has been transformed by because of the work of the Spirit in his life motivates him to continue his ministry efforts to the church at Corinth. We, have, we as Christians have been forgiven much. Let us forgive much. I hope that this example of grace from Paul can be an inspiration to us and a reminder how the Spirit can and will work through us. Let's continue on in our verses. Um, the rest of verse 2 into verse 3 says, To be known and read by all, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. The believers of the Corinthian church are proclamations. Again, this idea of the living letter. To be read by the world around them. In many ways, they are a great example of the amazing transforming power of the gospel. At this point, Amongst all these other problems, however, Paul has heard that much of the sin and chaos of the first letter has been removed. The chaos brought to order so that now many at the church of Corinth are different people. They are new creations, as Paul will call them later in this letter. So much so that, as Pastor Jason taught on a few weeks ago, Paul made sure to encourage them to no longer to be harsh with a brother who had repented, but to affirm him again with their love and that he had turned from sin, and not to continue to hold uh, condemnation on him, but to love him and to bring him back into the fold. This change and transformation can only happen because of Jesus, whom Paul had preached to the Corinthians. The change is the proof of God's work through Paul in the church at Corinth. The living letter of the Corinthians is one given by Christ because the Spirit has worked in the hearts of the believers there. The comparison of not written with ink, but, with, but by the Spirit, not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts, is a clear allusion to uh, the original tablets given to Moses of the Ten Commandments. It also is an allusion to prophecy of the New Covenant, which we'll look at, uh, speaks about in Jeremiah and Ezekiel here in just a few minutes. However, let us continue in this, this idea of a letter analogy. Ink can run. Ink can fade. The paper or the papyri of that day was very delicate. It could be easily torn, burnt, or lost. It was in an impermanent. 
He goes on to say, on tablets of stone, which in this case would represent the law of Moses, the religion of Judaism, it didn't hold. It didn't stay. It wasn't meant to continue. For now, I want to read a couple of verses that give us the language found in verse 3. Jeremiah 31, 3, if you want to write this down, I'm going to read it. It's about the new covenant that God would establish with his people. Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Also, in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The law can only show us what we should do or not do. It does not give us the power to obey. The law as it was, the tablets of stone, were external, but the Spirit of God, through the power of the gospel of Jesus, gives us a new heart. It makes an internal change. It makes alive our souls to God, and it writes the law on our hearts. We could not keep the law, but Christ did. This gives us the power through the Spirit to walk in obedience to Christ. By Paul using this language, he is announcing that the new covenant is here. He's saying, this is my ministry, not the corrupting ministry of the Judaizers that say you need Jesus and the law or Jesus in circumcision. This, the law, is no longer at use. At best, all it could do is produce behavior modification. No permanent change taking place. But now, in Christ, under this new covenant, the law is being written not on hearts of stone that are unfeeling and cannot respond to the goodness of God, but fleshy hearts where the law can not only take root, but the spirit we have, through the spirit, we have the means to actually keep it. And this is exactly what has happened in Corinth through the ministry of Paul and why he says they are his letters written by Christ to the world. So how does this apply for Paul? His apostleship, his ministry, his godliness were being called into question Instead of boasting and getting defensive, he points them to Christ and the Spirit's work in their lives as proof to the ministry of himself to the church at Corinth. But what about for us? Our lives are letters, our words, our deeds. These things prove what we believe. They speak to who we follow. We are called ambassadors of Christ later in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, it says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are proclaiming, listen to me now, we are proclaiming to the lost and dying world that we have been changed. We have been forgiven, we have been made nude, and we have been reconciled to God. Us as Christians, we do not follow the patterns of this world, but are led by the Spirit of Christ and God's Word to live lives that are different from the world around us. You are an example of a Christian. Heck, you are an example of a Baptist, of a Southern Baptist even. The way you treat your coworkers will not only tell them about Jesus, but about the church you're a part of. Your letters of Pastor Jason... This is not said necessarily to make you feel bad or, or maybe feel condemned, but to remind you that wherever you go, 
You take Christ with you. I can remember as a kid, whenever I would go to a birthday party or an event, my mom would sit me down and she'd have this real serious look on her face and say, listen, you're going out into the world. You are an example to this family. You are to show that you have home training. Anybody else use that word? In the You've got home training. You are an example to me, to your dad, to your grandparents. Folks, our behavior reflects our home. And our home should be in Christ. You might be the only Jesus anyone ever encounters. How are you going to show that you've been changed by the Spirit of the living God? All right, so we've just looked at Paul's confidence in the living letters. Let's move on to our second point. Paul's confidence in the sufficient calling. Verses 4 through 6a, uh, God is sufficient to make those he calls adequate for the ministry of the new covenant. Let's look again at our, our text. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Paul's abilities are not what make him qualified for ministry. If anyone had a reason to be boastful or confident in themselves or what they can do or how they can adhere to the law, it probably would have been the Apostle Paul. Philippians 3, verses 2 through 7. Look out for those dogs. Look out for those evildoers. Look at those who mutilate the flesh. Here he is dealing with Judaizers again. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Here's where he boasts about his old days. Though I myself have a reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Listen, if keeping the law was part of being a Christian or a way to keep your salvation, I'm pretty sure would have come pretty close. But he illustrates further in verses 7 through 11, this is not the way of the true follower of Christ. So Philippians, um, we just continue to read on. But whatever gain I had, I counted as, a, as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order to gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. These verses really help us to understand what it means to find our sufficiency, not in anything that we can do, but all confidence and trust must be in Christ and his gospel. It is where our righteousness springs forth. It is where we go to find hope in a hopeless world. It is the message we proclaim to the world. It is how we bear through the sufferings that we endure. We must realize, as the hymn says, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust a sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Paul is confident in God alone to make him sufficient as a minister. Let's go back and 
you read those verses real quick. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Paul has to make it clear, crystal clear, that unlike the peddlers and perverters of God's word that have come through needing letters of recommendation or asking for letters of recommendation from the church at Corinth, it is God and only God that makes Paul sufficient. And for that matter, anyone that is a minister of the gospel. Later on in 2 Corinthians, as Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh and the suffering and weakness that is caused, he, call, he quotes the Lord saying, he, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, that I am strong. Paul again is answering his own question from chapter 2, verse 16, when he says, who is sufficient for these things? The answer is, well, he is. He is sufficient because God has made him sufficient. Later on in this letter, Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What is this treasure? It is the gospel ministry, the ministry of righteousness, the new covenant, the ministry of reconciliation. Paul calls himself and his other co-laboring ministers jars of clay. But why does he use this term? Why does he not say that we are golden chalices or silver bowls beautifully lined with diamonds, ready to be filled and used for however the Lord sees fit? It's because in those items, we would find strength, extraordinary beauty, if we think of ourselves in such a way, we might be inclined to think God uses us because how special or unique or talented or beautiful or intelligent or well-spoken we are, that we have something to boast about in ourselves instead of the Lord. Thankfully, the reality is quite the opposite. We as humans actually come from the dirt. We are formed out of the clay by the hand of God, and we are fragile in nature. We're sinful, petty, selfish, prideful creatures that live every day looking for something else other than God and his goodness to fill us. However, it is this very weakness that makes us the perfect vessel for carrying the good news of the gospel. We are broken, needy people in need, desperate need of the same message that we are carrying to others. Isn't that encouraging? We don't have to be perfect. Amen? We don't have to be pretty or the best. God uses us in spite of who we are to tell the world about himself. God has used filthy shepherds, fishermen, tax collectors, killers, prostitutes, the religious, the non-religious, the bearded, the unbearded, those with hair, those are bald, those with mohawks, Brother Jason. He used kings, he used men, women, boys, and girls. If you're sitting here today, thinking, I don't think I can serve the Lord like I want to, or I can't share my faith like I should, or I'm not like those other people at church. Man, they must be super Christians or something. We are all jars of clay, sometimes broken, always brittle, but God can and will use you. 
Let's join this point a little further. Let's look at Moses. Oddly enough, as Paul's about to use Moses as a comparison, as the minister of the old covenant, covenant, excuse me, so too here we can think back about his weakness of speech. One commentator has said, in interpreting God's call of Moses, when the God of all things used Moses as his minister, why did he choose for himself a man of stammering and slow speech? His answer, because this displayed all the more his divine power. For just as he chose fishermen and tax collectors to be preachers of the truth and teachers of piety, it is by means of weak voice and slow tongue he put to shame the wise men of Egypt. Paul would have agreed the same applies to God's choice of him to be a minister of the gospel. God's power through the Spirit leads and empowers the people of God to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Yes, there was a special calling on the lives of the apostles. Yes, there is a special call to pastors for ministry. However, we are all ministers of the gospel. Amen? Amen. We should all take it very seriously and know that once you've been called to salvation, you are called for proclamation. Later on in 2 Corinthians, Paul will call us ministers of reconciliation, which means because of Christ, sinners can be reconciled to God You, you have been charged with the good news of the perfect life and teachings, substitutionary sacrificial death on the cross, the sin and death-defeating resurrection and eventual triumphant return of our Lord and Jesus Christ. Many of you will say, I don't know the Bible well enough. I can't counter all the arguments. I won't have all the answers. Or what if at work or school they don't like me anymore because I stand up for Christ? What if I become known as the Bible thumper? What if it causes division in my family? What if I lose family or friendships over this? Folks, the gospel is the power of God to save sinners. Yes, those are legitimate concerns. But I refer back to what the Lord said to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. There are worse things in life than saying, I don't know. But you can say, I can find out. Or I'm not sure. I'll have to think about that. As far as the insults, the loss of relationships, persecution is promised. And it's in our suffering that we become more like Christ. It is far better to be denied by man than be rejected by our maker. So we've looked at Paul's confidence in the sufficient calling. Third and finally, let's look at Paul's confidence in the new covenant. We go back to our text, verses 6 B, the second half of verse 6, all the way through 11. The new covenant surpasses the old covenant through its ability to be life-giving, spirit-filling, righteousness-producing, and it is permanent in glory. Let's look at our verses. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such a glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more what is permanent have glory. Paul's confidence in the new covenant. 
In those verses, Paul makes reference to the letter that kills, to the ministry of death and ministry of condemnation. Conversely, he writes about the spirit that gives life, the ministry of the spirit and the ministry of righteousness. What I'd like to do now is take those six things and group them into two groups of three. So we have the language that talks about the old covenant, that's the law of Moses, the covenant of works. And then we have the language about the new covenant, which is initiated by the gospel. As Paul says that he has been made sufficient to be a minister of a new covenant, he uses a strange phrase, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. He's setting up again a comparison of the law of Moses, of Judaism, versus the spirit, which here is representing the work of the spirit, which works salvation in the hearts of sinners. What I don't want to do is communicate that the law of God is bad. That is incorrect. Paul would be making the psalmist a liar because he goes at length in Psalm 119 about the beauty and the, uh, the glory of the law and its commands and how it speaks to live a holy life, good and God-honoring. The law of God reflects the holiness of God and the holiness he desires from us. And it's his plan for his people to be set apart in not only the way they act, but in every facet of life. However, adhering to the law does not bring salvation or life. As humans, we are sinful and we cannot perfectly obey the law. On top of that, when we get a set of laws, we just add more to it, which makes life even that much more unbearable without any hope of ever actually being able to live up to the standard. Therefore, the law can only bring condemnation and spiritual death. It does not have the power to give life, hence why Paul refers to it as the ministry of death in verse 7 and the ministry of condemnation in verse 9. Let's look at Romans 8, 1 through 7, and let's see what the effects of the law can be as compared to the freedom and life we have in the Spirit of Christ. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at these verses and see what the law does. So stick with me. I'll, I'll explain exactly what we're doing at the end of this. Let's read. Romans uh, 8, 1 through 7. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of the life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So for those who are under the law, they live with condemnation. The law of sin and death rule in their lives. They're enslaved. They struggle with the inability of flesh to follow the commands of God. Living under the law brings death because of sin. Living under the law brings hostility with God because of the inability to fulfill it. The law is good, but sin uses the law and brings death and condemnation because of it. Paul again illustrates this point perfectly in Romans 7, 7 through 12. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would have not known that coveting really was if the law had not said it. You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity, afforded the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. 
I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. So we're not at odds with the law, but with sin and the way it uses the law to bring death and destruction upon us. We see the idea of the ministry of death put on display. However, it is not the law alone that condemns and punishes us to, to death, but sin that takes the law and uses it to bring condemnation. I want to use um, the Galatians 3 real quick, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Moving on to verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world, one man in death through sin, and so death spared to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those sinning, not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So here Paul goes back again past Moses to Adam, which through him sin entered the world. So even before the law of Moses was given, death reigned because of sin. Adam was given one moral command that he could not keep through that disobedience. Sin enters and corrupts man in all creation. There was no death before the fall. Sin brought death physically and spiritually into the world. But the law brings more, because as the sin is, as law is given, sin abounds. So as the list of do's and don'ts grow, so does the, off, the offense and disobedience to God. Let's look at the Spirit who gives life, the ministry of the Spirit, ministry of righteousness. I promise I'll be wrapping up here in just a minute. But what does the next set of verses tell us in Romans 5, 15 through 21? But the free gift is not like the trespass, Amen. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free uh, gift following many trespasses brought justification. And there's your good news. Here's our spirit that gives life, the ministry of the spirit, the ministry of righteousness. If we think back to Romans 8, um, therefore there is now no condemnation. Those verses we just read, if we think about it in the positive, what do we have? We have the freedom created by the law of the spirit of the life in Christ. We have the power of God over sin and death residing in us because of the Holy Spirit. We have a renewed mindset determined by the things of the spirit, not of the flesh. We have a holy way of thinking. And in Christ, this brings life and peace. It took the God-man, Jesus, to keep the law we could not, to satisfy the wrath of God that he poured out. It took Christ's perfect life, sacrifice, and his completing atonement by the resurrection to defeat sin and death. This is the ministry of the new covenant. This is the ministry that Paul has. The ministry of righteousness speaks to the justification by faith that we receive through power of the gospel and the work of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19. Therefore, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This ministry of righteousness reconciles us to God through Christ. And just as the old covenant has passed away in Christ and the new covenant by his blood, we are made a new creature. 
Further down in verse 21, one of my favorite verses, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ's goodness has been applied to us who are in Christ. His total righteousness exchanged for complete sinfulness. The old covenant can never do that. Sin could be covered but never removed or forgiven. That's why there are sacrifices taking place. Nothing could remove the stain of sin. As we move on, let's talk about the glories and then we'll be finished. So we have a lesser glory and a greater glory. Now that we've completed the different ministries, let's take a look back at those few verses. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For there was glory in the ministry of condemnation. The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have glory, uh, no glory at all, excuse me, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Paul sets Moses' ministry as having a temporary glory, but the ministry of Paul has a permanent glory. So he has referred back to multiple times the the scene we see in Exodus where uh, Moses has climbed the mountain of Sinai and God has given him the Ten Commandments and there's thunder and lightning and Moses comes back down and he sees that they've built the calf and he, he crashes the tablets and then he has to go back up again and God sends a plague and all this, this craziness is happening but the, the mountain is full of glory and when Moses comes down his face shines like the sun so much so that the Israelites can't stand to look at him. They can't stand to gaze into his face. God's glory in that moment for the Israelites was frightening. It meant judgment for anyone to look upon that perfect display of holiness. So even though Moses desired, let me see your glory, God hid him with his hand in the cleft of the rock and he saw only a glimpse of the back of God because if he had seen the glory of God in its fullness, it would have destroyed him. That was enough to impart a blinding, temporary glory to Moses, which as Paul puts it, the Israelites, like I said earlier, could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory. Why? Because even the temporary glory was splendid and overwhelming. As I've already stated before, and I will again, the law is not bad but good, and it was at a time even glorious because God used the law to reveal himself and his will for the lives of people. This glory, however, was only for a time and was not permanent. The glory that appeared on Moses' face was radiant and bright and blinding, but even after a while, it did fade. The glory of the, the new covenant, it, it's more, it exceeds, it surpasses, as, it, as we see in our verses. The ministry of the Spirit, of righteousness, the ministry of Paul, the new covenant, it's described as having more glory, a glory that exceeds, a glory that surpasses. And how is this? It's for all the reasons that we've already discussed. In the Old Covenant, God made promises to his people. He gave them laws and practices that pointed them towards holiness, but ultimately could not bring salvation. The law and its use were temporary and only able to bring death and condemnation. However, without it, there would be no promises to fulfill. No opportunity for God to show his own glory to an even greater degree in his son, Jesus. This new covenant was one that brought life and righteousness and is everlasting. The old is not completely abolished. Like Jesus says, he came not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. However, the glory now outshines the old covenant so brilliantly that in comparison, the new makes the old disappear 
in the overwhelming light of the gospel. I've got one more illustration for you guys, and then we'll be done. Think about it as a kid. Did you ever walk outside with a flashlight in the middle of the day? Anyone? Okay. Just imagine it. You walk outside with a flashlight. It's noontime. The sun's shining bright. Can you really see that flashlight? Can you see the light of, of it? Think about a time, how about when you were camping and it was dark, and maybe you had to go gather some more firewood or use the tree latrine, as my granddad used to call it. Did that flashlight light up the whole forest? Or just maybe the areas around you so you didn't stamp in a step in an anthill or step off a cliff? A flashlight can only show us where to and where not to go in the immediate area around us, but it does not shine bright enough to illuminate everything. The light of the flashlight can only be so bright until finally the batteries run out or the beam dissipates over a certain distance to where it can no longer show us anything. But what about the sun? When the sun rises in the morning, it shines so brightly. Can we not see everything around us? Does the sun run out of life-giving rays of light? No. Its light shows us everything around us. It is a greater and better source of light. Did the flashlight have its use? Did it? Okay. But only while it was dark and only for so long. When the sun comes up, you put away your flashlights because, hey, they're no longer needed. This illustration might be simple. Uh, it might be silly. But I hope it helps to bring some understanding to the comparison of the old covenant to the new covenant. The new covenant has surpassed the old covenant in every way. This gives Paul confidence to know to stand firm against any attacks that might come his way from within the church or without. The glory of Christ is forever, and it is greater than any of the law because Christ fulfilled the law in himself. The new covenant promises everlasting life and glory with God. The old can only point to these things. It can only provide shadows and types. Thank you, God. We are no longer under the curse of the law, but under the law of the Spirit and grace because of the gospel. So in conclusion, we have seen that Paul has confidence in the living letters because the transformed lives of the Corinthian believers were the proof or living letters to God's work through the previous ministry of the gospel of Paul. We've seen that Paul has confidence in the sufficient calling because God is sufficient to make those he calls adequate for the ministry of the new covenant. And finally, we've seen that Paul had confidence in the new covenant because the new covenant surpasses the old covenant through its ability to spiritually give life, be spirit-filling, righteousness-producing, and in its permanency. If I could invite you guys to bow your heads for a moment, if I could have a leader come forward. Believer, listen to me today. You can have confidence in the Lord because of the work that he's done in your life. You can have confidence that he gives you what you need to minister and that the new covenant in Christ is sufficient for all that we need. To those who don't have that confidence, I urge you, I beg you, I plead with you. You can today have confidence in a Savior who is waiting on you. The call has gone out. The word has been preached. All you must do is respond in faith and repentance. God can save you. God can use you. God can change you this day.